Welcome to Ejil, the podcast. This is episode 18. I'm Philippa Webb and I'm here with Professor Dapo Akande and Professor Marko Milanovic. And today we have two special guests with us. Professor Philippe Sands, the Professor of Public Understanding of Law at University College London and Barrister at 11KBW. And Margaretha Wervinka Singh, Associate Professor of Public International Law at the University of Amsterdam and Adjunct Senior Lecturer in Environmental Law at the University of the South Pacific. Welcome, everyone. So our topic today is advisory opinions, reflecting on their role and significance. And there's been an upsurge in interests and requests for such opinions. In December, an international organization, the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law, requested an advisory opinion from the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea on climate change impacts arising from ocean warming, sea level rise, and ocean acidification. On the 9th of January, Chile and Colombia signed a joint advisory opinion request to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights on the scope of state obligations for responding to the climate emergency. Previously, in 2017, the Inter-American Court had issued an advisory opinion recognizing the right to a healthy environment. On the 20th of January, the General Assembly adopted a resolution requesting an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on Israeli practices affecting the human rights of the Palestinian people on the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem. And Vanuatu is tabling a climate resolution during the current session of the General Assembly, requesting the ICJ to provide an advisory opinion on the obligations of states under international law to protect the rights of present and future generations against the adverse effects of climate change. I don't think there's ever been such an active period for advisory opinions in international law. So, Turning first to DAPO, what kinds of questions are these advisory opinions trying to answer? So if we start with the International Court of Justice, of course, the court normally hears contentious cases between states, but it also has the competence to hear advisory opinions that are requested by organs of the UN or or specialized agencies of the UN. And if one looks in the past, you can see that there have been different kinds of advisory opinions. I would say probably three types of advisory opinions that have been requested of the court. In the very early days of the court and of the UN, you had advisory opinions that were closely connected with the functions of the United Nations. So these were opinions that were asking the court to give advice on something that would be directly relevant to one of the 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 work of one of the the organs of the UN. So the classical one that one can think of here is the certain expenses case that had to do with UN peacekeeping and had to do with financing of the UN. So that's one type. However, those kinds of advisory opinions have actually declined in terms of the number of such requests that have come to the court. A second type of request that has come to the court are uh, requests that deal with if you like, 
issues that are in dispute between states, but which are not necessarily directly connected to the work of one of the organs of the UN. So you can think, for example, of issues to do with, say, the the previous request for an advisory opinion on, on Palestine. It's an actual factual issue. It has some relationship with the work of the UN, but it's really involving, if you like, the rights and obligations of of states. You can think about the Kosovo advisory opinion in that respect. And perhaps the one that stands out the most is the Chagos advisory opinion. So that's the second type. A third type of advisory opinion, we haven't seen too many of these, but I think we will probably see more of them, is an advisory opinion that doesn't deal with a matter in dispute between states, but is asking the court to give an opinion on a more abstract issue of law. Abstract in the sense that it's not related to a dispute, though it may be related to a pressing problem that the international community is dealing with. And I suppose the best example of that, maybe even so far, the only example we've seen is the nuclear weapons advisory opinion, where the court was asked about the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons. But as we will come on to in due course, the requests relating to climate change are probably of this nature. It's not so much something that states are having a concrete dispute about. It's more abstract in relation to um, a problem that the international community faces. So those are the the main three. I mean, there has been a fourth in the past. We need not dwell on that. The ICJ used to deal with employment cases that would come to the court sort of an appeal and the court would deal with them by way of an advisory opinion. But thankfully, it no longer has to, to do that kind of work. Now that we understand the categories, these three to four categories uh, of questions that may be asked, let's focus on specific examples and the real purpose behind asking for an advisory opinion from either the ICJ or another international body. Can I turn to you, Marco? They're obviously not meant to be uh, about resolving a dispute, a contentious dispute, which has another path um, before the court. Uh, So there's obviously some other motivation behind uh, these advisory requests. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I I wouldn't put it like that. Um, They're not supposed to be solving a bilateral dispute. And in fact, you know, if you go through the the court's uh, jurisprudence uh, on preliminary questions uh, for advisory opinions, you know, the court reserves for itself the discretion to refuse to answer a question if it is a bilateral dispute in disguise. But in reality, in quite a few cases, as Dapa was saying, they are about resolving a dispute or trying to push a dispute forward. Uh, Certainly, that was the case with Chagos and Kosovo. Um, You know, in Kosovo, Serbia had a specific purpose, which was to sort of stop the flood of recognitions of Kosovo as a state and to impede Kosovo's sort of consolidation of its statehood. To some extent, that was successful. Uh, Serbia also wanted, in some sense, to vindicate its claim of sovereignty over Kosovo. That was, to a large extent, not successful. Um, Kosovo had, you know, a different sort of reason for for appearing there, obviously, to consolidate its own claim of statehood. Chagos, on the other hand, was clearly motivated by a desire to put pressure on the UK to to resolve the sovereignty question in some way, and also to some extent to protect the the, the rights of the Chagossians, although probably 
you know, depends on who you ask, right? Probably to a lesser extent. Um, but broadly, more broadly speaking, what is the purpose behind any of this kind of litigation? It is to vindicate state interests in some way and or to make the world a better place. Uh, so certainly that's the motive behind, you know, the Palestinian advisory opinions, which is to put pressure on Israel to to sort of backtrack from some of the worst things it is doing in the Palestinian territories. That is the idea behind the climate change requests. It is to somehow add the ICJs or the ITLOS's authority or the authority of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights to sort of pressure being put, put on states to come to solutions to the climate crisis. Um, so I, I suppose it's always going to be a mix of, of a various different reasons. The problem, obviously, is that in, in some instances, these purposes simply not just won't get vindicated, they will, you know, the request itself might backfire, as was probably the case with the nuclear weapons advisory opinion, where the court really gave a, a bad answer that, that, that could be misused and has been misused. Um, and so that's like probably the biggest risk when litigants are considering whether to put forward such a request for an advisory opinion is whether it might do more harm than good. So on that, Philippe, you were involved in the nuclear weapons advisory opinion. Do you agree with Marco's characterization that it backfired? Um, I think generally, I, I do. First, can I say it's incredibly nice to be on this program uh, with all of you. And thank you for all your doing for international law and in, in having these kinds of conversations. So it, it, the, the nuclear weapons advisory opinion for me is, is a very personal case in the sense that it was the first one that I ever argued before the court. And so it was a very novel experience. So there's the sense of it at the time, which was, of course, one of considerable excitement and hope. Um, and I never really asked myself the question at the time, as I recall, is this a socially useful thing to be doing? And I thought that it was. Um, but with the passage of time, in fact, very quickly, soon after the court had given its advisory opinion, I came to the conclusion that the whole thing was pretty catastrophic and it should never have been asked. Ask a silly question and you're going to get a silly answer. And I think most recently in the statements of President Putin of Russia, effectively invoking an advisory opinion which says you can use nuclear weapons if the very survival of the state is at stake, you get a clear sense of the catastrophe that that, that opinion uh, was. And so I think t time gives a sense um, of um, the utility of a particular uh, opinion. And I think what I've taken away from this, and we can come back to it, is the absolute crucial importance of getting the questions right, and in particular, limiting the wiggle room of the court to basically deal with an open-ended question and to cut straight into the chase in relation to some of these other questions that are coming up now, I am, um, as some of you will know, deeply concerned about some of the questions that have already been sent in and are circulating in relation, for example, to climate change. And I do worry that these opinions have the capacity to do more harm than good. Obviously, that is not what I hope will happen, but I do think that that is a real risk. I, I really found it interesting, Philippe, your, your point about the formulation of the question. I mean, if there is a clear case of a question completely backfiring, that was certainly the cost of advisory opinion. So in that particular case, 
it was Serbia, of course, that lobbied the General Assembly to ask an, a, a, an advisory opinion of the court, which the Assembly then did. And the question that was asked was essentially whether the Universal Declaration of Independence by the Provisional Institution of Civil Government in Kosovo was in accordance with international law. And that question, as formulated, allowed the court to essentially interpret it incredibly narrowly as focusing on essentially a verbal act, a declaration of independence, and saying, well, international law does not generally prohibit declarations of independence by non-state actors. Um, and in, in that sense, that formulation was stupid, uh, but it was motivated by a desire of Serbia not to antagonize various states in the General Assembly, for example, not to ask about recognition. It was also motivated by a greater fear of backfiring. Imagine if they asked, was Kosovo a state? And the Kosovo said, yeah, the court said, yes, Kosovo is a state. And so ultimately that calculation led to that kind of stupid question. But in Chagos, you learned the lesson and you asked a much better question. Can, can I just say on Chagos so that people understand how those questions were formulated? They were, firstly, it took two years to draft the questions. It was done by a small group, deeply experienced with the court. And that for me is absolutely crucial. It was really led by James Crawford, who of course had argued the Kosovo case, and I think would uh, generally share your your view, Marco, on, on the merits of, of that opinion, and certainly shares my views on the nuclear weapons advisory opinion. And so there was a little team um, of really experienced folks, Elizabeth Wilmshurst, um, uh, Sean Murphy, Paul Reichler, uh, Jagdish Kunjal, the ambassador of Mauritius at the UN, and myself, and it took two years. It's important to note that the reason that case was brought, coming back to DAPO's um, uh, sort of categorization, is we were just given an instruction. There had been an arbitral award by an Annex 7 tribunal um, in which the majority by three votes to two ruled that a law of the sea tribunal cannot express views on sovereignty over land territory. But there was a dissenting opinion of two judges, Kateka and Wolfram, which I think was very significant. And the prime minister of Mauritius personally said, on the basis of those dissenting opinions, I am instructing you to find a way to get this to the International Court of Justice. And of course, the only way to go um, apart from the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which we did not want to do after the dismal uh, judgment in Georgia versus Russia, uh, was an advisory opinion. And so we said to the government, look, we'll do it, obviously, if you instruct us to do it. But we're really worried, given what happened with nuclear weapons, given what happened with Kosovo, to make sure that there is no wiggle room on the questions. And it really did take a long time. And I think that is what I come back to. And that may be a common theme in relation to nuclear weapons and advisory opinions on the one hand and Chagos on the other, and perhaps a point of reference as we discuss the climate change and perhaps other advisory opinions, the nature of the question. The more wiggle room you give a court, the more scope there is for mischief. And I'm afraid that the drafts that are circulating and that which has gone to it loss are so open-ended that the room for mischief is very significant, particularly if you look at who sits on the court. You've got to keep an eye on who the judges are. It's not a sort of monolithic 
group. They each have their own backgrounds, their own interests. Some are open to the environment, some are closed to the environment. Um, some are from permanent members, some are from industrial countries with a very significant financial stake in all of this. And and, and I, I, th- I think that is the crucial lesson that I take away. Draft questions that reduce to as close to zero as possible the room for wiggle room by the court. These are fascinating insights. Um, I think linking back to what Marco said, sometimes you can go to the other extreme as in Kosovo and not have enough wiggle room. The question being so narrow that the answer was not of great use to anybody. Uh, So it's not that we can say narrow question positive, broad question, negative. There's obviously a lot of shaping and strategy uh, that that lies in the background. If I could turn to Margaretha, who's been very involved in uh, the climate change questions going to the General Assembly and eventually to the International Court of Justice. How does your experience of uh, working on these questions compare with what Philippe has described in terms of the Chagos advisory proceedings? Um, thanks. And I, I, I want to also um, echo Philippe's words of thanks for the invitation to be here. It's wonderful to be here. I'm also an enthusiastic listener of this podcast, so it's very nice to be on it. Um, when it comes to uh, the question, so of course, we care deeply about the question. We know that so much of the outcome depends on the question. Um, so as the legal team for, for Vanuatu, we spent indeed also significant time drafting the question with a very experienced and also diverse group of international lawyers. So we started working on it in earnest in 2019. We worked through to 2021. Then you have something which you think is a perfect question and you need to get it through the UNJ. And so um, that's where we are now. I go to bed with a question, I wake up with a question. It is constantly in motion. Um, We have a massive Excel sheet with feedback that keeps coming in from different UN member states. Last week uh, was the third round of informals at at the UNGA. That's probably going to be the last round. And it's still, it's a very dynamic process um, with of course, a lot at stake. Um, we are really at the stage also where um, all, yeah, all all UN member states for whom there is a lot at stake are also really very deeply engaged. And um, also I think using quite sophisticated strategies to influence um, the text. So of course it's very delicate. Um, <laughs> There's only so much I can say, but it is, we are holding our breath and we are hopeful that we will get a resolution adopted. To what extent have you been inspired or learned lessons from previous uh, questions, such as the questions asked uh, in the Chagos Archipelago proceedings, or perhaps the questions that have been sent uh, to ITLOS? I must say it's not only... um, it's not only in the process of crafting the question that um, past examples matter, but also in the process of negotiations. Because, of course, you need arguments to explain why certain textual choices are made. And then um, it's very helpful. The most, pers- most persuasive argument is, I think, to look at 
how uh, previous questions have been formulated and how those questions then have been addressed um, by courts and tribunals. So on this question of the formulation of of questions, you know, I think um, it's interesting to look at the request that has just gone to the ICJ regarding the legal states of the occupation in Palestine, because that's a really um, broad question that's been put to put to the court. And it's interesting to contrast that particular request with the previous request that went to the ICJ on Palestine. The previous request dealt with a very narrow issue in the sense that it dealt with the legal consequences that arose out of a particular factual situation, the construction of a wall. Whereas this particular request that's gone to the ICJ is looking at the occupation more broadly. So it's looking at the um, the status of the occupation as a prolonged occupation. It's also looking at policies and practices of Israel with respect to, to the occupation. One of the things that I think is actually really interesting when you think about this is it's not just the breadth of the question, but it's also that the question itself, when one looks at the text, makes some characterizations with regard to the law. So you look at the question and it talks about the legal consequences that arise from the ongoing violation by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination. So there you see a characterization in the question around violation of by Israel of the right of the Palestinian people. Raises questions about whether or not, you know, what the court does with a question that in itself suggests certain certain answers. And then the other thing that the question talks about, it talks about the adoption by Israel of related discriminatory legislation and measures. And again, it raises questions about what the court does with the characterization that is in the question, that's in the question itself. So, you know, this is the, you know, from the narrow and the idea that questions should be narrow, a decision has obviously been made at this, in relation to this request, to, to do something which is actually broad in relation to the facts that the court is asked to address and something which itself speaks about, which itself raises questions of, of, of law. We'll see what the court, um, what the court does with, what the court does with that. But I mean, just to, to say a couple of things about, about that breath. Here you have right of self-determination the court has to deal with. Possibly the court has to deal with at least the uh, certain arguments that have been made around whether even the law relating to the use of force, the use ad bellum itself speaks to this issue, issues of, of IHL. And the court has to make some determination as to what in particular it is going to actually address when these questions come come before it. Can I pitch in here very, very quickly? I, w- I would just um, go back to Philippe's point about how the drafting of the Chagos question was done by people with a lot of experience in ICJ litigation. And I think the important point to, 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 to bring out here is that the same question might get litigated and get decided on differently by different courts and different judges, right? So we don't need narrow or broad questions. We need questions that are calibrated for a specific court at a specific moment in time. And those questions will tend to work or not work. I mean, uh, judging by the designs of their 
of those who asked the question. On your last point, Dapo, about the question containing some factual or legal determinations and what the court will do with them, actually, the court dealt with this a bit in the Kosovo case. So you'll remember the, the Kosovo uh, uh, question asks about the legality of the Declaration of Independence by the provisional institutions of self-government. And the court said, well, actually, that's a factual question of who made the declaration. And in our view, the authors of the declaration were not the provisional institutions of self-government, nor did the General Assembly intend to bind us to say that they were. No, the authors of the Declaration of Independence were essentially a random group of elected representatives of the of the people of Kosovo, who acted in their sort of individual capacity. No, I personally don't like this, you know, this this uh, this particular decision. But it it tells you that the court will not feel terribly bound by what the General Assembly says. It may very well reformulate the question just like it did essentially in the Kosovo case. So on the one hand we're calibrating questions bearing in mind the specific court. And that goes beyond whether it's the ICJ or ITLOS or the Inter-American Court. But to Philippe's earlier point about the composition of the court and looking at who are the judges uh, sitting on the bench, who's the president, who, uh, who has the ear of the president, I suppose, as well. But we're also calibrating these questions to gain support uh, support to ask the question in the first place, especially in a, when you're trying to get a majority in the General Assembly, and then support for states to actually engage in written and oral proceedings, and eventually, hopefully, um, to treat the opinion as authoritative from the perspective of the, the states seeking to ask the question. How, how does that calibration feed into the formulation of the question? I'd like to come in in response in part to what Margareta said. I think she's described very accurately this this very tricky process um, of a smaller group has identified the questions they'd like to ask. And then, of course, as she said rightly, you've got to get it through the General Assembly. And that is not always a, an easy issue. Now, I think there, there was obviously a big difference between Chagos on the one hand, which is an, a narrowly defined issue as compared with climate change. Um, and so I think you're not comparing like with like. And I can completely see that the experience that Margareta and her team are going through in relation to the responses of a very large number of countries, each of whom have their own very particular political interests, frankly, and legal interests, is very different from one where in Chagos, the question was characterized not as a bilateral dispute over sovereignty, but as a an issue relating to decolonization, which, you know, as Philippa and I are, are well aware, and DAPO too, as we all worked on it, was one of the central issues, the characterization of the questions put. I think, just reprising slightly the conversation that we've just had, I think one of the interesting parts of this conversation is the distinction between and relationship between a question that raises matters of fact and evidence on the one hand and legal aspects and consequences on the other. And I wonder also, just going forward in time, when one begins to think about what happens with these advisory opinions, that becomes an interesting way of understanding 
how the question is formulated and what happens to it once it's before the judges. I, I know that in Chagos, we were very concerned in narrowly defining the question to tie it to a particular moment to concentrate the judges' thinking on what actually happened as a matter of fact. I mean, if you go to the beating heart of Chagos, it really did turn in the end, assuming you could persuade the court that it was about decolonization, not a dispute over territorial sovereignty, what happened in 1965, and in particular, were a group of Mauritian leaders subjected to any degree of duress? That's essentially a factual question. I mean, of course, it has a legal element. And most member states of the United Nations don't have skin in the game on what did and did not happen. So they're not going to come down as they do on climate change. With We didn't need an Excel spreadsheet. Um, once you'd characterized it as decolonization, you knew who was going to be for, you knew who was going to be against. But I have to say that in, in drafting the question, we were incredibly conscious of who the judges were on the court. Um, we believed that there were at least two judges on the court who would not be able to sit. You have to remember when this first came up, it was in 2016, there was still a British judge. We thought he would not be able to sit because he'd sat in an earlier arbitration. We thought the Australian judge could not sit because he had been counsel in that arbitration. And so we were looking at a panel of 13 judges. And we spent quite a lot of time, frankly, looking at the backgrounds of those judges. You know, to give you an example, if you're dealing with decolonization in relation also to matters of sovereignty and the rights of states, the presence on the court of a judge from Morocco is sort of going to concentrate your mind because you want to make sure that the question that you put is not immediately going to raise the hackles of that judge. So what we did to explain how it worked, we actually read all of the oral arguments in the Western Sahara case and, of course, discovered that the man who is now a judge had been counsel in that case. And so we went back to what he had actually argued. And if you look at the question, you will find that there is a connection between the formulation of the question and some of the arguments made by that individual in his capacity as counsel. So that's the degree of micro attention. I mean, I really do want to here pay credit to someone who really was for me, and he's no longer with us, a, re a real mentor in thinking about these things was James Crawford. He would be the one who would say, look, you know, we need to think about this thing. And it, it is that attention to micro detail, which I know some people, my good friend Alain Pellet thinks it's just a nonsense. You've just got to treat all the judges as part of a sort of big mass and not think and waste your time on these things. I respectfully disagree. I, I don't think it's dispositive. But I think if you then take before the Inter-American Court of human rights, their climate change issue and the ITLOS climate change issue, and hopefully the one that eventually will come to the International Court of Justice, and I, I do hope with the right question that that will get to the court, you've got to look at who the judges are. And then you've got a really interesting thing that's going to happen, because assuming three courts giving advisory opinion, frankly, you know, there's a sort of Thatcherite, Reaganite model here of competition um, between courts. Um, and we know how competition does work. Judges never actually articulate it. We know the fact that the International Court of Justice determined that its provisional measures are legally binding. We know that had nothing to do with the reasons given in the actual judgments in the Grand Anavena. It's all about the fact that under the law of the sea, 
Annex 7 arbitrations and ITLOS have binding provisional measures orders. So why would the ICJ rule that their provisional measures orders have no legal force? Plainly, they weren't going to do that, but they don't want to say that. And I think in the coming year, what will be fascinating will be the interplay between the judges, hopefully on three international courts on tribunals. And I wonder whether that will get some of the judges who get involved in perhaps a later case in a sense, I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a rude sort of way, but to sort of up their game because they will want to keep themselves at the forefront of thinking on these issues and not slip into some sort of black hole. So again, perhaps not to overstate the composition of the judges, but I think equally not to ignore that they will be looking over their shoulders and they will be looking at their place in legal history. And they will, I suspect, most of them be saying, look, on climate change, this is a real issue. We've got children. We've got grandchildren. They really care about this issue. Um, Do we want to be on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? How can we be on the right side of history in legal terms, whilst also at the same time being true to our principles? And for the case of some of them, not getting our own countries into real difficulty in the future going forward, because let's be realistic, that is also a factor which cuts in. So this is why I think you need, you know, a single lawyer can't draft the question and sort it out. You really do need people from a range of different backgrounds and experiences who come together and and beat it out to work out what comes out of the mix. It's a fascinating process. Oh, that's uh, that's absolutely true, and I think we see that also playing out right now around um, the ICTA, um the request for an ICJ advisory opinion, and that is being formulated now. Um, and of course, um, to to try and optimize participation in the proceedings and impact, it is important that um, the process is inclusive. And so um, there is a balance to be struck and indeed in taking into account the, the views of different UN member states on the one hand and trying to preserve the integrity of the question on the other. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it's also important to acknowledge that we have reached a point in time where positions are perhaps not so conflicting anymore as they would have been in the past. Because it's really clear that climate change is, is a threat that that affects um, everyone and that there is more uh, political will across the globe to address the issue. So if there is like a factual, a real factual background to, for example, Vanuatu's initiative to bring climate change before the ICJ, it is, as you know, it's a grassroots initiative. It emerged from a law school, um, the University of the South Pacific in Vanuatu, just after a devastating cyclone had destroyed much of the country, killed people, destroyed infrastructure, damages amounting to 64% of the uh, of the GDP of, um, of Vanuatu, and really confrontation with the existential nature of the threats that climate change poses. But this is, as we know very well, now, not confined to Vanuatu, we see examples of, of climate disasters um, hitting every region of the world. There's a, conscious of, a, a, a consciousness of that also in um, New York amongst diplomats. We, we see that. And so um, I think the negotiations would have been very different if they would have happened 
10 years ago, let's say. What I think is really fascinating is also the question, the, the phenomenon of, um, of transnational judicial dialogue that we see. And this is already going on at the domestic level. So we see domestic or international law being interpreted in connection with climate change by domestic courts all around the world. Um, one part of my research concerns the way in which domestic courts grapple with international human rights law in its connection with climate change. And it's fascinating what, what goes on there in how in the interpretation of provisions of international law, but also the way in which domestic courts draw on each other's interpretations. If we go back to that classification that I gave at the beginning about different kinds of advisory opinions, the ones that concern a sort of concrete dispute that's happening in the world, as opposed to the ones that deal with questions of law. And let's think about what are we trying to achieve so I imagine that, say, for Mauritius in the Chagos, as, as Philippus described, or for Serbia in the Kosovo advisory opinion, as Marco described, they, they know what would be a good result. They know what they're trying to get out of it, of the opinion. When we come to the kind of request that you're involved in, which is a sort of more abstract um, question, this question of what are we trying to get out of it is probably a little bit more difficult. And I was wondering if you could sort of say something about that in the sense of what you would think is a good outcome. Is the point of this just to get good statements on the law so that we sort of have a clearer sense of what the law is? Or is there something more? Because, again, to draw that contrast, I suspect that, say, for Serbia or for Mauritius, they want good statements on the, on the law, but actually they're very concerned also about the bottom line. They're concerned about what the court actually says and how that affects the thing that's before them. So, yeah, what for you would be a good outcome, coming back to this question of what's the point of these kinds of opinions or these requests? Well, um, I'm optimistic in the sense that I think the chances of a really bad outcome are relatively small if the question is um, the question asked is... Um, a good question. The, the main risk would be, even with a good question, the main risk would be um, an answer that is so vague that it is meaningless. And here that could be, in, in the case of climate change, it could be an answer along the lines of states have a duty to cooperate under the UNFCCC and the, and the Paris Agreement. Um, that would not, not be helpful. And it would also, of course, have um, create disillusionment, disappointment, undermine confidence in the international legal system. Of course, the hopes are very high and there's something um, powerful about youth, law students, um, movements and also small states turning to the ICJ um, in the hope that the ICJ will help to um, bring about positive change connection with this big problem so the, the stakes are very high but what do you what do you really want to get out of the of an opinion then so of course it is about um clarification of the law um the international courts and tribunals don't make law it's about um interpreting um existing uh, provisions of international law but of course in a way that's 
makes these um, provisions more um, impactful. And so um, there is, there is um, generally speaking, I think we have reason, reason to believe that pronouncements from international courts and tribunals influence state conduct um, in various ways. Um, and of course, it depends um, on, on the particular state in question, etc. But um, the, there is, um, I think most, most states will take what the ICJ has to say about the meaning of particular parts of international into account when they formulate policies at the national level and also um, when they negotiate in the, under the umbrella of the UNFCCC in the Paris Agreement and other relevant um, platforms of negotiation. So we've, we've talked a lot about how to set things up to optimise uh, what the court says, uh, the quality and quantity of participation from states in the proceedings. But what about the aftermath? What action can be taken to reinforce the impact and enhance the legitimacy of an advisory opinion once it's been uh, given. And if I could turn to first Marco on your reflections on the Kosovo advisory opinion. So I suppose it's, 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 it's a very difficult question. I mean, the Kosovo advisory opinion to this day reverberates sort of in Kosovo and Serbia, because as you know, the dispute is still sort of unresolved. Uh, there's currently all this pressure being brought to bear by the US and the EU on Serbia and Kosovo to come to some kind of new political agreement that is on the path forward to to say maybe Kosovo joining the UN, et cetera, et cetera. And you constantly hear, for example, the president of Serbia, our soft dictator type of guy, who talks about how the previous government made a mistake in litigating the Kosovo case before the ICJ, in which they did. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting issue about uh, on that point. If you look at the, the new Palestinian advisory opinion, I mean, we know what's going to happen. You don't have to have a crystal ball, right? The ICJ is going to say there are all sorts of consequences that arise from Israel's continuing occupation of Palestine. The issue is, will they say, as they probably will, and Israel is under a duty to terminate it immediately. And then Israel will just say, no, we won't. And so the advisory opinion will be used, of course, by Palestinians. It will be used by all sorts of other actors. But the key change in behavior, looking at how the political scene in Israel is is is, is like right now, unfortunately, we, we can predict how that's going to play out. It's the climate change stuff that is really remarkable, and it's really hard to predict. And I think one thing we will definitely see is domestic courts, as, as Margareta was saying, domestic courts in sort of Urgenda-type cases will be relying on all this kind of international judgment that will come out which may also come out in some contentious cases as, as they're being litigated before the ECHR. And that's the hope that, you know, they will get pushed in some good direction and we might get, you know, a 0 0.1 degree Celsius less warming than we would have otherwise. Let me put it that way. Just just to maybe come in on that in relation to, to, to my own experience, I, I think, and Philip has put the accent on it, I think one of the things that matters a lot is... Um, 
the outcome in terms of who supports it. I think Chagos was very striking because it's in effect a unanimous decision on the merits, or at least there is no dissent on the merits. There was one dissent on jurisdiction, but it didn't address the merits. And the Judge Donahue was very careful to say nothing about the merits, which which meant that it had a particular force. Um, and, and I think the um, wall case back in 2003, 2004, in a sense, was also in effect with one exception of a dissent by Tom Bergenthal, pretty forceful, and of course was then taken up by the European Court of Justice in in its approach. So I think you want to avoid a situation in terms of consequence where the court is bitterly divided, because I think that really undermines the force of what comes. And so in relation to climate change, I think you want to end up with a question which is going to um, get as many of the judges on board as possible. You don't really want a 10-4, 10-5 split. And you, you really want a, if you can find a single point on which you can get all of the judges on board, that's likely to give the opinion, I think, more legs. And then the question becomes how that has consequences. I've always thought that at the end of the day, to the extent that courts have a role to play in a real and practical sense on climate change, it's going to be at the national level. And so the function of an international court is to come out with um, an opinion which essentially can then be picked up and run with by national courts. And this, in a sense, underscores what my concern is with the advisory opinions that are going forward on climate change, you know, the most likely outcome is that they just come out with some sort of blamongy type of we've all got to be nice to each other and cooperate and take account of our legal obligations. And there's no practical consequence to that in real terms, which is why I've always thought that the questions that are likely to have a real impact are questions that deal with matters of fact and where the rubber hits the road is on the science. And broadly, there is now a scientific consensus. So for example, if ITLAS or the Inter-American Court or the ICJ were to say, there is now a consensus on the science, and a state which fails to take account of that consensus or the scientific um, uh, sentiment will incur greater responsibilities, greater risks, has greater obligations to follow, and so on and so forth. So the outcome needs to be as precise as possible in order to give it legs before the courts that are going to matter the most, which I think is going to be the national courts. And I think in litigating the cases, because with very general questions, you still have the next phase of the case. We haven't really touched on how you then actually make the arguments. Um, and again, in in Chagos, as, as, as well, Philippa won't know because you had a different role, but Dapo knows a monumental amount of effort went into the coordination between the states participating on dealing with particular issues and particular arguments from particular perspectives. And so that degree of coordination, which is hugely time consuming, and I'm sure Margareta has that well in hand in terms of what will come in the next in the next phases, is the point at which where a group of countries in the oral arguments coming together and saying, this is the fundamental issue, there will be the possibility, even with these very general, broad questions that are coming in the oral phase, in the written phase and then the oral phase, to narrow down 
the issues in such a way that the judges on the court who really play a key role, and we know that it's always a small core group, including obviously the president, who on an advisor opinion takes responsibility for the drafting, can then really home in on that narrow issue. And my hope will be, in terms of what's a good outcome, coming back to that question, something that is as narrow and focused and factually specific and which can be picked up by national courts around the world and perhaps also legislators around the world and said, this is now our legal responsibility. And if we don't do this, we expose ourselves to greater risk. I think that's the best hope for those sets of opinions. So we've heard a lot about hope, actually, including um, how we can achieve uh, an outcome that, that gives us hope. And we're not just talking about narrow historical questions now. We're talking about existential threats uh, to the planet and to future generations where we're very much looking for signs of hope. So Philippe started off saying that at the time of the nuclear weapons advisory opinion, he had a sense of hope uh, that turned out to be misplaced given how the question was phrased and how the court uh, responded to the question. Margareta has spoken about her sense of optimism regarding climate change uh, litigation before international courts. But what's also, I think, come out of this conversation is the granularity that has to be uh, implemented to, to give the best chance of that hope being realised. The precision of the question, the precision of the coordination, uh, and then I imagine also the precision and effort uh, put into implementation. I'd like to thank Philippe and Margareta for joining us, for sharing fascinating insights of both past and pending cases. And uh, perhaps we can reconvene in a year or so to see how the courts decided. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit edialtalk.org.